Hello, this is Aaron Bounds, pastor of the Anchor Church located in Zanesville, Ohio. I want to say thanks for tuning in today. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you to live the life God called you to live. And in that day, Isaiah 12 says, and in that day shall you say, praise the Lord. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Brother Woodward, your ministry has always impacted us, and and, uh, you've been such a blessing this week, and I want to say thank you. And last night's message about the shield of faith, I'm telling you, how powerful was that? About the armor of God is tailor-made for us. I'm telling you, we win tonight. God's doing something in his church. I want you to turn to somebody and say, greater things are yet to come. Woo, glory. Oh, I feel a praise in the building. Brother Woodward, come on. Come on and preach to us. I think we ought to just praise him for a moment as he's coming. The Lord is wonderful. The Lord is glorious. Hallelujah. We're so thankful for the man of God. Amen. Brother Woodward. enemy has been defeated. The church is victorious. Jesus is alive and well. And his presence is in this room. We are blessed people. I want to get right to the word of the Lord. I'm so excited to preach to you tonight. Uh, Such an honor to be here. I just want to take a moment and say what a privilege it's been to be here. I love your pastor and his wife and his family. I love your leadership team that's here in this church that serves you so well. And I love all of you saints of God. Uh, It's pretty impossible to have great churches without great saints. And so I thank you for being so faithful. Some of you, I've already, I've I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for 40 years, one kind or another, and I get to recognize faithful saints pretty quick. And uh, some of you have been in your spot every single service. I thank you for that. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. Um, Do you know the Bible uses the word church and uh, only two times is the word church used to describe the church around the world, what we would call the church global or the church universal. Every other time the word church is used in the New Testament is describing a local church church in Jerusalem, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea. The local church is so very important. And your faithfulness and your involvement in your local church, it is the greatest spiritual decision apart from making the decision to serve God. It's the greatest spiritual decision that impacts your life and your family, bar none. You're so blessed to be part of the Anchor Church. I know you know that. Uh, Oh, I want to get right to the word of the Lord tonight. I'm so excited to preach to you. Uh, Go ahead and be seated. Uh, When you get there, just because it will freak out the devil, lift up your hands and lift up your voice and give God a shout of praise. (laughs) Jesus is in this room. God is in us. God is with us. God is for us. Yes, yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I want to preach to you tonight on uh, 
it's it's just a wonderful subject, and it's one of those subjects that the more I dig, the worse it gets and the longer it gets, so I'll try to be concise. I want to preach to you about the last word. Someone say the last word. It's very accurate to say that the Apostle John actually has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament because he is described six times as the disciple who Jesus loved. He's part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. He sits closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. He is the last to leave the cross as Jesus is dying. He's a first cousin to Jesus through their mothers. And he is the disciple entrusted by Jesus himself in his last moments with the care of Jesus' mother Mary. You could argue that John is the closest of all the disciples to the Lord. And so he's the obvious final authority on the ministry of Jesus. He has the last word. But John has the last word for another reason. His writing is incredibly powerful because the ministry and the words and the teaching and the miracles of Jesus are burned in his brain. Even decades after the fact, when John goes to write this down, his memory is keen. He still remembers the hour he met Jesus. It was 4 p.m. one afternoon. He vividly recalls little details. He remembers that there were six water pots at the wedding in Cana. He remembers that the Samaritan woman left her water pot on the edge of the well in her excitement to go share her testimony. He remembers strange little details like that anonymous cripple at the pool of Bethesda had been sick for 38 years. And he even remembers the name of the high priest's servant, Malchus. He remembers so much. He even remembers uh, what it would have cost to feed the 5,000 if they'd have had to pay for the food, 200 penny worth of bread. He was amazing on the details because John was an eyewitness. That's what he later says in one of his epistles, 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested. And we have seen it and we bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So John was very close to Jesus. But other disciples, they were eyewitnesses too. So there must be more to John having the last word than that, and there is. You see, John is the last surviving elder of the first century. His gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation, he penned them all, and they are the final five documents written by any of the apostles. Now, you know that Revelation is placed last in your Bible, but chronologically speaking, all five of John's books belong at the end of the scriptural record. There's even a group of scholars that believe that the gospel of John was actually penned last, even after the book of Revelation. That's open for debate. But chronologically speaking, John has the last word. He's very aware when he puts his pen to parchment, it is now 60 years after Pentecost. He's the only original voice left of the apostles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're gone. They wrote their gospels 30 years earlier. His friend Peter is gone. Peter was crucified head downward at his own request because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. 
Paul is gone. His pen has been forever silenced because he was beheaded by the brutal dictator, the emperor Nero. But all of those martyrdoms are now 30 years in the past. When John picks up his pen and he begins to write in the early 90s of the first century, A.D. 90 and after, he really does have the last word on Jesus. And that's why his gospel is unique. Because by the close of the first century, false teaching is already beginning to rear its ugly head in the church. And that's why John goes to war against false doctrine. And he begins to write. And that's why the gospel of John does more than any of the other gospels to tell us not just where Jesus went or what Jesus said or what he taught, but who Jesus is. And here's my point for the last night of these revival services tonight. The truth is this church is in perpetual revival, so this is not the last night of revival services. Yeah. But I came to tell you that if we lose the revelation of who Jesus is, no other revelation we have actually matters anymore. Jesus is the true and only God in a body of flesh. So John is one of the original oneness Pentecostals of the first century, and he wants to anchor everyone who will follow, including us, to this truth. First John, again, chapter 5. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are, somebody shout it, one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. And so the operative, the emphasized word in those verses is not three, it is one. These three are one. These three agree in one. John is not alluding to a trinity here because at that point in church history, nobody has ever yet come up with the idea of a trinity except in one place, in rank paganism. In the Far East, India has what they call a trimurti, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Israel's ancient slave master, Egypt, they have a trinity, Osiris, Horus, and Isis. Israel's arch enemy, Babylon, has a trinity, Nimrod, Tammuz, and Semiramis. The Greeks have a trinity, Zeus, Apollo, and Athena. The Romans have a trinity, Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. And every time Israel backslid all through the Old Testament, they served a Canaanite trinity, Baal, Molech, and Ashtoreth. But that's not what John's talking about. He's not talking about a trinity of gods because those are false gods. Those are fake gods. Those are pagan ideas. When John says these three are one, he's not talking about a trinity. He's echoing this, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You got to forever settle it in your mind. There's not two gods that deserve your allegiance. There's not a multiplicity of gods that you should serve. There is one God, one Lord. So here's the point. From his opening sentence, John is on a mission. He is going to prove to us in this last of the Gospels, this last word, that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. He is the true and only, ever-living, never-dying God in a body of flesh. 
And that's why 90% of John's gospel, 9-0, 90% of John's gospel is unique only to John. He's very selective about the miracles he records. Some of the miracles in John you would never have heard tell of if it wasn't for John. He's the only one who records the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And all of the miracles he records are twinned with Jesus' teaching in some way. For example, all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, but only John records Jesus' powerful sermon immediately after that, I am the bread of life. I am the bread come down from heaven. There are no parables at all in John. But there are many, sometimes very lengthy conversations with people like Nicodemus and Mary and Martha and others. Everywhere in John's gospel, Jesus is revealing his identity to those who will listen. And John's writing has so many unique features. The teacher in me would like to explain them all, but the common sense in me says, get to the point. In John... 25 times Jesus says, verily, verily. It's a double amen. It calls attention to powerful truth that Jesus wants to reveal. Like this one, verily, verily, the things that I do, greater things than these shall you do. Every time Jesus wants to tell the church of the future something, John writes it with verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen. That only occurs in the Gospel of John. So John isn't just writing a biography of Jesus. He's writing a theology of Jesus. There is no Christmas story in John's Gospel. There's no baby in a manger. There's no Bethlehem. There's no shepherds or wise men, no star or angels in the heavens. Why? Because John knows that the birth of Jesus was well covered by Matthew and Luke when they wrote their gospels 30 years earlier and that the truth of the incarnation has been believed and preached by the New Testament church even longer ever since the day of Pentecost. So on the incarnation and on many other doctrines, John assumes something. He assumes that his readers already know what Jesus taught and what his church practiced and what the apostles preached for the last 60 years. And that's why it's critically important to read the Gospel of John as the last word of the Bible. It is critically important to understand that John's writing comes after the day of Pentecost, after the preaching of the new birth, after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, it's incredibly important to understand that John comes after them, not before them. And that becomes incredibly important as we go to understand Scripture and rightly divide the word of truth. There are a lot of people today, if you ask them what the gospel is today, they would take you to John 3.16. And they would say, that's what you need to do. Just, you, you need God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So all you need to do is just believe. It's kind of a, a little knowledge, a scent in your head. I believe in Jesus and you're saved. But what's important to realize is that John 3.16 wasn't written until A.D. 90-something, 60 years after the New Testament church got started. 
No New Testament apostle, preacher, pastor, evangelist, prophet, teacher, nobody in the New Testament ever quoted or preached John 3.16 because it wasn't written until all of those apostles were gone except for John and he picked up his pen 60 years after the day of Pentecost and wrote the words of John 3.16. So if they weren't preaching John 3.16, what were they preaching? Oh, that's easy. From the very first day of church history, at the end of the very first sermon ever preached by an apostolic preacher, he talked to them about Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So while nobody ever preached John 3.16 in the church age of the first century, they They turned the world upside down with Acts 2.38. And you know what the apostolic church is still doing in the 21st century? We love John 3.16. That talks about how God so loved us that he gave. But that's not how you obey the gospel. That's just the gospel itself. And you need to believe the gospel so you can obey the gospel. How do you obey the gospel? We're still preaching it. Acts 2.38. We are still turning lives inside out, right side up, and the world upside down with Acts 2.38. To put it plainly, John has given the last word in the Bible because he most clearly presents Jesus as the last word from God. Jesus isn't just like God. He's not just part of God. He's not a member of a committee of God's. He's not similar to God. No, Jesus is God in a body of flesh. I am come in my Father's name. I and my Father are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father. When you worship Jesus, you're not just worshiping the dead founder of our religion. When you worship the name of Jesus, you're lifting up the God who created this universe. My, my, my. Now God has always manifested himself in various ways. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, angel of the Lord. There's all kinds of ways, but Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God, who at sundry times, in different times, and in different manners, he spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So God's always been revealing himself, but he has in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who being, who? Jesus, Jesus being the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person, upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins. He sat down in the place of all authority at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's why in one of John's other books that he writes in the same decade at the end of the first century, he says this because he sees a vision. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name. Somebody say a name. A name written that no man knew, but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. You see, the word is a person, and that person is Jesus. That's why John's gospel starts so differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John's putting an echo in your brain. When you read those words, you're supposed to think of these words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's supposed to be an echo in your brain. Why? Because Jesus is, was, and always shall be almighty God. Verse 14, and the word, somebody say the word, was made flesh and dwelt among us and we had the chance to behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Are you glad an apostolic preacher preached to you the name of Jesus? Are you grateful that you came and repented and prayed in the name of Jesus? Are you thrilled that you were baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sin? So 90% of John's gospel is unique, even in its structure. Nobody else does this. John spends the first half of his gospel. Remember, there's no Bethlehem or little boy. Or there's none of that. He spends the first half of, of his gospel covering the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And then he spends the last half of his gospel covering one week of Jesus' ministry. It's quite an amazing gospel. And in the first half of John's gospel, he includes seven signs. He includes Jesus turning water into wine. He doesn't record every miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus heals a noble man's son. He heals a lame man. He feeds 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals a blind man. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. John records seven distinct miraculous signs that were part of that first three years of Jesus' ministry. John loves sevens. Seven is God's perfect number. In his gospel, there are seven titles of Jesus, seven sermons by Jesus, seven witnesses to Jesus' deity. And if you compare all four gospels, you'll even discover that there were seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross. But there's even more than that. Because only in John's gospel does Jesus talk at such length about his identity. John is the only gospel writer who intentionally records what we now call, and we referenced it on Monday night, the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. 
life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the true vine. Nowhere else but in the gospel of John. And it's so powerful because it's invisible in the English scriptures. All we see is a pronoun and a verb. I am, pronoun I, verb am. But in the ancient languages, Jesus is saying in the Greek language, ego I me. He's referring back to a specific moment of revelation, the greatest moment of revelation in Israel's history when a man named Moses knelt before a burning bush that was not being consumed by that supernatural fire and God revealed his name to Moses. So now a carpenter from Nazareth is walking around their streets using the ancient name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Every time he says, I am, he's referring back to God saying to Moses, I am that I am. You tell the children of Israel, you're not coming in to deliver them all by your little old self. You're not that strong. You and Aaron aren't that powerful. But let me tell you, Moses, when you go in, you say, I didn't come here in the name of Moses and Aaron. I came in this name. I am that I am. So when Jesus walks around, he looks like a carpenter from Nazareth. He doesn't have the nicest of clothes. He doesn't even have a home, a place to lay his head. Jesus is on the lower side of the income strata. But Jesus is walking around using the all-powerful name of God in reference to himself, and it drives them crazy. There aren't just seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven other times that Jesus uses I am, ego I me, in reference to himself. I am the one that speaks to you. He said that to an anonymous woman at a well. I am, so be not afraid. He said that to disciples who were afraid their boat was going to sink. And he came walking to them on the waves of the sea. He said to the Pharisees, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. He looked right at them eyeball to eyeball and he said when you have lifted up the son of man on a cross on that day you're going to know that I am. And he looked at them and it made them so mad. We're the children of of Abraham. How do you get off telling us all this Jesus said before Abraham was I am. He said to them, when this has all come to pass, you will believe that I am. And he told them in the garden, I have told you that I am. It's everywhere in the Gospel of John. So John spends the last half of his Gospel, chapter 12 through 21, summarizing just the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He spends five full chapters, 13 to 17, telling us about one conversation between Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. But now the hour is come. Early in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say this to people, mine hour is not yet come. Mine hour is not yet come. But now prophecy begins to accelerate and he says to his disciples, the hour is come. And now Jesus is a man on a mission. 
after eating the Passover meal, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He knows that his betrayer Judas is already at work. And so the pace of prophecy and the, the pace of the narration begins to pick up because John is, is moving to his conclusion. John chapter 18, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him, he went forth and he said unto them, this is all the soldiers that came with Judas to arrest him in the garden. And he looks at them and he says, whom seek ye? And this band of highly trained Roman soldiers, well-equipped Roman soldiers, they answer him. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus looked back at a brutal battalion of highly trained, very well-equipped Roman soldiers. And when they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he said to them, I am. And when he said that name that belonged to God, they all fell backwards on the ground like so much cordwood. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as he said unto them, I am, they went backward and they fell to the ground. That's how much power is in the name of Jesus. He doesn't just knock soldiers down. He can knock sickness down. He doesn't just knock soldiers down. He can knock down your enemies. My, 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 my. He spoke his name at a well and a sinful woman's life was changed forever. He spoke his name during a storm and a disciple named Peter was empowered to defy gravity and walk on the waves of the sea. And now he speaks his name in a garden at midnight and he knocked down a highly trained battalion of Roman soldiers. So I know, I got it. Theologians and pastors and whole denominations today miss what Jesus was saying. But the Pharisees, when they talked to him in John chapter 8, they caught the meaning all too well. That's why they tried to take up stones to stone Jesus in John chapter 8. And now in John 18, they're wanting to take Jesus to the cross and orchestrate his crucifixion. Because they don't like that he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. They don't like that he's saying, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. He doesn't like that. They don't like when he says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you shall know that I am. Somebody shout, I am. am. One theologian, Brother David Norris, in our fellowship, he wrote, when God says, I am, that I am, when he says, I am, it's also simultaneously, at the same time, a declaration, I am, and they're not. I am God, they're not. I am in control, they're not. I have all power, they don't. I am the God of the universe, they can't hold a candle to me. I am They're not. So when Jesus says, I am, he's referring back to that name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush in the greatest moment of revelation in Jewish history. And that name is, we would say, Yahweh, uh, Y-H-W-H. And that name comes from four consonants. This is in the Hebrew language. And the consonants are yud Hey, Vav, hey. Let's learn a little Hebrew. Everybody say Yud, Yud. Hey, Vav, Hey. That's how you would spell that name of God. Y H V H or Y H W H. And because 
ancient Hebrew had no cons or no vowels in it, they would insert the vowel sounds. It was spelled all with consonants. They called it the tetragrammaton. And so they would insert the vowel sounds. And so Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H became Yahweh. That's how they would say it. And there's no real translation for that in the English language. We just have to say the eternal God. That's all we could say. But in the English language over the years as language changed, in the English we wouldn't say Y-H-W-H. We would say J-H-V-H. And we would insert the vowel sounds. And that's why you say Jehovah. It's, it's, it's reaching back to that same name. Now there's something really strange that happened to the Jews because you remember in the Old Testament, they rebelled against God and God allowed them to go into captivity. And, and, and after the Babylonian captivity, they realized it was their sin and their rebellion and that's why God punished them. So when they came back from captivity around 450 BC, they became terrified of blaspheming the name of Yahweh, the name of God. And so they began to outlaw the use of the name of God. Imagine how ridiculous that is. These are the one God people of the Old Testament and now they're passing laws to say, you can't say the name of God out loud because we're scared you might accidentally blaspheme his name. So they started passing laws. First, they outlawed the use of the name of God for all the common people. Then they came back later and outlawed the use of the name of God for the priests. And finally, only the high priest was allowed to utter the name of God and he could only do it on one day of the calendar year on the great day of atonement when he was inside the Holy of Holies. Now we know this from history. Somewhere between the Old and the New Testament, when Simon, who was the last high priest permitted by law to use the name of God. When Simon the high priest died in 270 BC, they finally passed a law that said no one, not the common people, not the Levites, not the priests, not even the high priest can say the name of God. And they began to use a substitute word that you've maybe heard, Adonai. Everyone say Adonai. Now, Adonai just means master or Lord. So they'd read the Hebrew scriptures and they would see the name of God in their scriptures, but they were scared to say it aloud. Imagine how ridiculous that was, that the people who God revealed his name to, the people who claimed Moses as one of their patriarchs and forefathers, and Moses got that revelation of the eternal name of God, and they'd see it in scripture, but they didn't dare say it. And so every time they'd see it in scripture, they would, they would say, Adonai. They would say, they would see the tetragrammaton. They would see Y-H-W-H, but they couldn't say it aloud. They couldn't say Yahweh, so they'd just say Adonai, Lord. And they did that for 300 years. It was the only way they would refer to the name of God. It was terrible. It was tragic. And that's why John's gospel is so absolutely amazing because he writes down for us so we don't lose the revelation that suddenly a carpenter from Nazareth, a man that they accuse of being an illegitimate child, he is using that name of God in everyday conversation. 
think about this. No one has heard that name, I am, for 300 years. No commoner has used it, no Levite, no priest, not even the high priest for generations back, three centuries, had, had used the name of God out loud. And now Jesus is just walking around using it all the time, everywhere, as though it was his name. Guess what? It was his name because he was almighty God in a body of flesh. So if anybody had a right to use that name, it was Jesus. When Jesus uses I am, he's not using a pronoun and a verb. He's reaching back to the greatest moment of revelation in Jewish history. And when you worship the name of Jesus, all you say is, I love you, Jesus. But when you utter the name of Jesus, it traverses back through ancient history. It goes to every Old Testament covenant name of God. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You don't have to remember a secret slogan or a secret code. All you have to do is call on the name Jesus and every... I am the Lord that healeth thee. Jesus, and it comes to bear. Oh. See, it just crows. We could be here half the night, but we won't. We'll, we'll be okay. There's a Hebrew code in Scripture. It is not the books, the Bible code. I don't think the Bible prophesies the assassination of JFK and all that stuff. I'm not talking about those books. There's a Hebrew code in Scripture. And you don't see it in English because English isn't Hebrew and Hebrew isn't English. But the Jewish religious leaders, they had studied the patterns and the beauty of Scripture. You see, if you read the Old Testament, if you could read it in Hebrew, we have to just study it secondhand. But much of the Old Testament poetic literature was written in coded form. It was inspired by God, but I think it's written that way to make it easier to memorize. In Psalm 119, I mentioned it the other service, there are 22 sections in Psalm 119. Each of the 22 sections have eight letters. The reason Psalm 119 is divided into 22 sections are because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first section, every verse, every one of those eight verses in the first section begins with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Every one of the eight verses in the second section begins with the Hebrew letter Beit, which is the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and so on through Psalm 119. If you look at the book of Lamentations, the chapters have a similar pattern. Chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5, 22 letters, beginning with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order, if you could read Lamentations in Hebrew. Third chapter of Lamentations, 66 verses, three letters at a time. Alpha, alpha, aleph, 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 bait, 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 and it just goes on down through. It's a pattern, and they could memorize large sections of the word of God by following the pattern. If you read Proverbs 31, pastors preached on it here, I know he has. Uh, there's a section of scripture about the virtuous woman. 
That section of scripture, you check it out in your Bible, it has 22 verses describing the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Same thing, 22 verses, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and if you could read that section of scripture in order, there's a pattern there. So to put it bluntly, the Jewish scholars, they would scour the word of God, and they would memorize the patterns of the word of God, and so they didn't miss very much. It's amazing that they knew so much about the divine arrangement of Scripture, but when God came in the flesh, they couldn't see him, they couldn't understand him, and they totally missed what God was doing. But one of the details that the Jews were fanatical about was the name of God, and that's why Jesus, using that name, offended them so much. And so they plotted, and they schemed, and they worked behind the scenes and they came up with a plot to crucify him. And they put Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, the God who could speak, I am, and knock down a battalion of soldiers stood in courtrooms in six illegal trials in one night and let them misuse him and abuse him. And he just stood there and took it. You know why? Because he was a man on a mission. He was headed to Calvary so he could die and shed his sinless blood and it could forgive you and I of our sins. And so he let them do that to him. But the scripture is amazing. You can study this Bible for 10,000 lifetimes and you will never exhaust the revelation in God's word. And so Jesus is standing on trial before Caiaphas the high priest. And there was this odd little scripture, this obscure little commandment hidden away in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 21 and 10. He that is the high priest among his brethren upon whose head the anointing oil was poured and that is consecrated to put on the priestly garments shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. It was always there in the law. They kept it. The high priest was not allowed to uncover his head. He was not allowed to tear his clothes. And now we go to Mark's account of Jesus on trial and it reads like this. But Jesus held his peace and he answered nothing and it irritated Caiaphas the high priest. And again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He's been taunting Jesus. He's been pushing at Jesus. He wants to get him to admit that he's God in a court of law so they can charge him with blasphemy. And Jesus isn't intimidated by Caiaphas at all. Jesus can speak one word and Caiaphas can drop dead like King Herod in the book of Acts. Jesus can speak one word and a company of angels can come like they did and wiped out an Old Testament army of the enemy. Jesus can speak one word and it can all be over. Jesus can speak one word and he can knock down highly trained Roman soldiers. Jesus can speak one word and cancer can be burned out of your body before you leave this building. Jesus can speak one word and your backslider can feel something in that bar they're sitting in right now and say, I gotta get back to church. Caiaphas is angry. He's never been so angry. For three and a half years, Jesus has walked around their streets using the name of God in reference to himself. And it's made Caiaphas blood boil. 
because he's never been allowed to speak the name of God out loud. It's against the law. His daddy, who was also a high priest, was never allowed to speak the name of God. His grandfather, his great-grandfather, back 300 years, it has been illegal to speak the name of God out loud. But Jesus is not intimidated by Caiaphas, who has his finger in his face, saying, you tell me, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus looked back at the high priest of Israel, and he said, I am and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And it made Caiaphas so angry that he reached up in a moment of anger and the high priest rent his clothes and said, what need we any further witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death because in their mind he was guilty of blasphemy. But he wasn't guilty of blasphemy. When Jesus used that unutterable name of God in reference to himself, he had a right to use that name. And when that high priest, in a fit of temper, in a fit of anger, when he reached up and he tore his garments, he disqualified himself from being the high priest. And at that exact instant, the high priesthood transferred from Caiaphas and it landed on Jesus. And so when Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, he wasn't a murder victim. He wasn't a martyr. He was the high priest taking a blood sacrifice to pay for your sin. He was both the high priest and the sacrifice. He was both the high priest and the bloodshed. No wonder Calvary covers it all. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, or who you are. Calvary can forgive your sin. Oh. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, seeing then that we have a great high priest. He's passed into the heavens. He is Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So here's the point. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I don't care what your need is. You can make your way to the high priest and his blood, his sacrifice can cleanse you, heal you, deliver you. Oh, I think we just need to take a time out, lift up our hands, lift up our voices, lift up your praise to the Lord. When you worship Jesus, you're worshiping the creator of the universe. You're worshiping the God of all gods, king of all kings, Lord of all lords. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I lift up your name in your sanctuary. I lift up your name among your people. Just take one more time out. Pray in the Spirit. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, pray in the Holy Ghost. If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, pray in tongues for a minute. 
You're standing in the presence of the God who created every molecule in your body. He can turn around that batch of rogue cells that is causing you grief. He can turn around that organ that's out of order. He can turn around whatever situation is in your home or your family or your mind. I told you, it just keeps getting bigger. Jesus has enraged the Sanhedrin. He has enraged the high priest. But this time, they think they've got him because this time, he used that name of God not on the seashore, not in the city, not in the streets, not in the country, not on the mountain or in a valley. He used it in a court of law. So they think they've got him. But under Roman law, the Sanhedrin, because they're controlled by Rome, they are not allowed to execute anybody. So they rush their prisoner to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and they demand of Pilate that Jesus be crucified. Now, you can read the gospel accounts. Pilate is seemingly very impressed with Jesus, but they force him to carry out this execution through political pressure. John 18, then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, no, we can't do that. It's not lawful for us. We're under Rome. It's not lawful for us to put any man to death. Why did that happen? That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Calvary wouldn't have worked if Jesus had been beheaded under Roman law. Jesus had already spoken that the Son of Man would be lifted up and draw all men <laughs> unto him. <laughs> so that's why that happened. That's why Rome was in power over the nation of Israel at that very moment. That's why the law was that the Jews couldn't execute their own prisoners. That's why that was all in place, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. You can almost feel prophecy, can't you? It's almost, you can feel it accelerating at this point. The penalty for blasphemy is actually death by stoning. But because the Jews can't execute anyone, the Romans have another form of execution. He will die by the method of, called crucifixion. That is what the prophets foresaw. Jesus is not going to be stoned for blasphemy. He's not going to beheaded, be beheaded like the apostle Paul would later be. No, Jesus is going to be crucified because it's what the prophets foresaw and it's what Jesus foretold. Pilate makes a big theater out of it almost. He releases the robber Barabbas he has Jesus scourged at the whipping post. He allows his soldiers to mock Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And the Jewish leaders, after all of that punishment, still cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And that's when Pilate seems to get a little nervous. And he walks out and he talks with Jesus and he declares, I find no fault in this man. And he tries multiple times times to set Jesus free, 
but all to no avail. Matthew's gospel records that Pilate actually washes his hands and declares, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Pilate's own wife even has a dream and sends him a message and she says, have nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. God is trying to say to Pilate, you need to excuse yourself. But you see, the Sanhedrin is manipulating Pilate by threatening to report him to Caesar. And so he feels powerless to set Jesus free. John 19. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Because whoever makes himself a king like this man, he's speaking against Caesar. So Pilate is powerless. Even though he sees something incredible in Jesus, he's powerless to set him free, or he thinks he is. But maybe there is something that Pilate can do. If he can't set him free, at least he can recognize what this good man said about himself. Maybe that's why as Pilate continually interviews Jesus, he keeps referring to him as the king of the Jews. I think Pilate's trying to irritate them, and that's what Jesus said about himself. He has no idea when he presents Jesus to the crowd, the angry mob, early that morning, and he looks and he says, Behold your king. He doesn't realize that Pilate's not a Jew. He doesn't realize that he's presenting Jesus to that angry mob at the exact same time that the Passover lamb is being prepared for sacrifice on that very same afternoon. Pilate has no idea that his every action is fulfilling prophecy. John 19, and it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, so they're preparing the Passover lamb for sacrifice in just a few hours, and he says to the Jews, behold, your king, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests are so angry at this point. We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. So Pilate is going to allow them to take him and use Roman guards to put him to death. And they took Jesus and led him away. And they took Jesus to Golgotha, the place of the skull, a place of execution just outside the walls of Jerusalem, sitting on the highest point of Mount Moriah. Talked to you about it already this week. This is the exact same place where Abraham offered Isaac. This is the place where David made a sacrifice and stopped a plague. This is the place where Solomon built the glorious temple to God on that very same mountaintop. This is where Jeremiah sat in a cave and lamented over Jerusalem's destruction. Why do I say all that? Because you can feel the streams of prophecy converging on that one little hill as Jesus, the substitutionary lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the glory of God, the one who wept over Jerusalem is taken to that very same spot to be crucified. John 19, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. 
I don't know what Pilate knew about Jesus. I don't know what he believed about Jesus. But I know this. He's not quite finished yet. He doesn't know everything he needs to know. Whether he understands what he's doing or not, or whether he's just doing it to irritate the Jews, his actions that afternoon are absolutely, uncategorically prophetic. John 19. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing he put over Jesus' head was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And it was written in three languages, a trilingual sign in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then the chief priests of the Jews came running to Pilate and they said, write not the king of the Jews. Change that, Pilate. Write something like this. He said, I am king of the Jews. And I don't know what Pilate knew, but he looked back at those chief priests. He was so irritated with them. They had tried to force his hand and he said to them, what I have written, I have written. I'm not changing it one little bit. But there's a point behind this. There's prophetic, prophetic significance behind this. It's just another epitaph over a condemned criminal to the Greeks and the Romans. When they see that inscription in Greek and Latin, they don't care. But when the Jews see it, oh my goodness, they see something that troubles them. And they rush to Pilate and they say, you got to change it. Add a couple of words on the beginning. Add a couple of words on the end. Why? Because they're seeing something that a Greek or a Roman wouldn't see. Written over Jesus' head in Hebrew was, Hebrew reading from right to left, backwards to English. Written over Jesus' head was Yeshua Hanazari Vimelech HaYehudim. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But the Jewish leaders, they were Bible code experts. They'd spent a lifetime studying the patterns of Scripture. They'd spent a lifetime memorizing Psalm 119 and noticing the first letter of every verse and the virtuous woman and noticing the first letter of every verse and the book of Lamentations and noticing the first letter of every verse. So when they saw that inscription, they didn't just see an epitaph of a condemned criminal. Here's what they saw. They saw the first letter of each word spelling out something that they did not want to see over the head of Jesus. It was Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. It written over Jesus' head on the cross was Yahweh, Jehovah. That wasn't just a murder victim or a martyr. That was Jesus, God in flesh, shedding sinless blood for you and for me. That's why his blood has power to heal you and deliver you. Paul described it in the, as the blood of God. And if it was divine blood, if it was blood that God put in that body that he created, you know that blood, it still flows today. That blood still heals today. That blood still delivers today. That blood still, it still forgives sin today. But it's even more beautiful than that. It's even more powerful than that. 
when you look at the tetragrammas in those four letters, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. Because not only is that a pattern, but every one of those Hebrew letters, there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Every letter is not just a letter, it's a symbol. Think about Egyptian hieroglyphics, the ancient Egyptian language. Every letter is a symbol. Well, encoded in the name of God, that little tiny letter, Yud, way over there on the right. Yud, everyone say Yud. Yud is associated with a symbol, and the symbol is hand, a hand. Hey, the next letter, is associated with a window. And so literally, the symbol behind the letter hey is behold, as if you were looking through a window. And then that long letter, the, the third letter, vav, it literally is associated with a nail. And then you have the word, or the letter hey again, which is associated with a window or the word behold. It's hard to fathom. But when God revealed his name to Moses at a burning bush, centuries before Jesus ever walked this earth, encoded in the name of God was, behold the hand, behold the nail. That was always in God's name. And when Jesus died on the cross, it's not a coincidence that those four letters were over his head. Behold the hand, behold the nail. Yahweh was written over his head. That was almighty God in that body shedding his blood for you and for me. I wish you'd praise him for it. I wish you'd make a noise in this great sanctuary. I wish you'd lift up every beautiful, glorious, grand word you've got in honor and praise to the Lord who loved you that much that he would shed his blood so your sins could be forgiven. <laughs> oh, Can I have like five more minutes? <laughs> hidden in the name of God. Right there it is. Hidden in the name of God. From the moment he revealed it to Moses, Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So on that day when he was crucified, you know this, all around the cross, creation spoke very loudly. The sun darkened, the earth shook, the rocks split, Graves opened and the temple veil was ripped apart from the top to the bottom. All around the cross on that day, creation spoke loudly. But over the cross, the word of God couldn't help but speak as well. Behold the hand, behold the nail. Now, even after their enemy was dead, the chief priests are still pretty nervous. <laughs> It's amazing. They come, in Matthew's account, they come to Pilate and they say, we need some Roman guards to secure the tomb until the third day. And Pilate's like, why? He's dead. No, no, you don't understand, Pilate. He said that he would rise on the third day. They're nervous of a dead man. <laughs> and so Pilate tells him, you use your own guards if you're going to do that. And he says in the book of Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, he says, go your way, make the tomb as sure as you can. 
<laughs> I don't know what he believed or what he knew about Jesus, but I think he's taunting them a little bit. Go ahead and make the tomb as sure as you can. But I have a hunch if that guy said he would rise on the third day, chances are he's probably going to rise on the third day. And I'm coming to a close very shortly. That brings us to the weekend that Jesus' body lays in the tomb. And it brings us to a day that we will celebrate here at the Anchor Church in just a few weeks. We call it Easter Sunday morning. And it's on that first day of the week that this is recorded in John's Gospel, John 20. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. I've been there to that tomb in Jerusalem four or five times. It's an amazing place to be. We've got a little wooden door on the front of the tomb right now with a little plaque that is engraved. It says, he is not here. He is risen. I've been there. I know exactly what Mary was looking at that day. When you walk in the tomb, you walk into what they would have called the mourner's area where a grieving family could stand. That's on the left. And as you walk into the tomb, if you look to the right, there's a, a wrought iron gate there now. But if you look to the right and you look through that gate, you can see these two flat stone beds. Um, and they're, they're there. It would have been for two people to be buried there. Two people who belong to the family of Joseph of Arimathea or some rich person. That's how they would construct their tomb. Jesus must have been tall because only they've studied that. Only one of those stone beds was ever used. And at the far end of it, it, it looks like somebody had hurriedly carved out some of the stone. The tomb is rounded, and so it comes down perfectly at the end of those two flat stone beds. But I think Jesus was maybe tall, so they've carved out some of it because it would be disgraceful to, to bury someone in a tomb with their legs bent. So it looks like they might have carved that out. And uh, his body laid there. And I know exactly what Mary was looking at. She looked in, and when you look in, you see that, that first bed. It's right in your line of sight. When Mary looked in to that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, she saw that low, flat stone bed. And John is the one who records it. And she sees two men, two angels, in white sitting, one at the head and one at the foot, where the body of Jesus had lain. There's only one other place in all of Hebrew theology where you have two angels facing each other over a flat slab. <laughs> that place is called the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. When Mary looked in that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, she saw a silhouette of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what happened on the Ark of the Covenant? That was where the Shekinah presence of God rested. That was where the glory of God's. Do you know why Jesus was able to come out of the grave under his own power? Because that wasn't just a human body laying on that. 
That whole weekend, the Shekinah presence of God had rested on that stone slab. No wonder he could come out of the grave under his own power and say, behold, I am he that was dead, but I am alive forevermore. The Shekinah presence of God was in that tomb that weekend. couple more scriptures would be good. John's gospel culminates with an inspired revelation in chapter 20. Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas. For 2,000 years of church history, he's been called Doubting Thomas. And do you know why he was called Doubting Thomas? Because he missed one church service. That's why he's been called Doubting Thomas for 2,000 years. So be careful when pastor calls revival. He misses the church service. The disciples are gathered together. Thomas isn't with them. Like, what are you doing? Where are you? They're texting him. No, they're not. didn't exist. And Jesus shows up in their midst and reveals himself to them. And they rush to tell Thomas, we've seen Jesus. We've seen the master. But Thomas, see, he was one of the disciples who was there. He watched the crucifixion unfold. He saw the blood. He saw the soldiers. He saw the tomb. And so he basically thinks they're all delusional. And he says to them, I was there, guys. You are delusional if you think Jesus is alive. We saw him die. We saw the blood stream out of his body. We saw them take his lifeless corpse down from the cross and wrap it up and put it in that tomb. There's no way. I'd have to see the nail prints in his hands and the sprint of the spear in his side and know it was him. That's the only way I'd believe. And you know Jesus is so merciful that the next time they were gathered together and Thomas was with them, he appeared again in their midst. And he said, Thomas, come on over here. <laughs> Put your finger in the nail prints in my hands. Thrust your hand into the big gaping wound of the spear print in my side. And Thomas suddenly realizes, I am talking to a living man who has mortal wounds in his body. Any normal man would have bled out in moments with these kind of wounds. But he's standing here talking to me. And when Thomas realizes the significance of something different about this man, it's the moment of revelation that is the capstone of the gospel of John who has the last word about Jesus in the Bible. John takes two titles and he puts them together for the first time. Kyrios, which means master, and Theos, which means supreme divinity. And he says, John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord, my master, and my God, I finally get it. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a religious leader. You're not just a good man or a miracle worker. You are almighty God in a body of flesh. And in that moment, you know what Jesus said? He said something about you. That's what he said. <laughs> 
In that moment, you know what Jesus was thinking about? He was thinking about people like you. That's what he was thinking about because here's what he said. Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. But Thomas, there's coming another generation of believers. They're never going to walk with me along the shores of the Galilee. They're never going to have a campfire with me. They're never going to walk with me over a hill or down a dirt road. But they're going to get the very same revelation that you just got. Some of them are going to live in Zanesville, Ohio. And they're going to live for me in the 21st century. And they are not going to back up one inch from the revelation that I am Almighty God in a body of flesh. Thomas, because you've seen me, thou hast believed. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you're blessed because you saw me. You're blessed because you got it. But there's coming another group of people. They're going to live for me down through the centuries. They're going to live for me just before I come back from my church. And they're going to have the very same revelation that you received. And they are more blessed than you. Can you say, that's me? Would you lift up your hands and thank God for it? I don't mean a low little rumble or mumble. I mean, would you lift up your voice and thank God for revelation? Thomas, one day there's going to be a group of people that never walk with me in the flesh, but they're going to walk with me in the spirit. They've never seen me like you saw me, but they're going to get the very same revelation you received. They're going to know that I am God manifest in the flesh. They're going to preach that I am the mighty God in Christ. They're going to believe that I am the last word from God. I got like two more verses, so I will not be long. You are not dragging this out. Just time out. Lift up your hands. Lift up your head. Lift up your voice. Lift up your praise. The presence of God is in this building. The power of God is present to heal tonight. Oh, there's some intercessors in this church. There's some prayer warriors in this room. I wish you'd lift up your voice like a trumpet and just worship the God of your salvation. He didn't just make the world. He knit you together in your mother's womb. If he made you, he can heal you. If he made you, he can deliver you. Stay standing, would you please? Just two more passages of Scripture and I'm done. This is at the end of the Gospel of John. This is after Thomas's powerful revelation. And John writes, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I didn't write down all the miracles. I didn't write down all the signs. I didn't write down everything Jesus did and everywhere he went and everything he said. But I picked these. These are written that you might believe something. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Literally, the body of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. And then if you go to the next chapter, to the very end of the Gospel of John, which very well be 
very well may be the very last book of the New Testament. I know Revelation is last in your Bible, but John wrote all five in the same time period. Chapter 21. This is the disciple. I'm the guy who wrote this book. This is the disciple which testified of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. I am not a liar. I've been living for Jesus now for 60 years. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, if they could be written down, every one. If I could write down every life he touched and every word he spoke and every miracle he did and every soul he saved, if I could write down all of that, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. John's gospel is effective, but it is also selective. If you take all the events, all the conversations, and all the miracles that John records in his gospel, they occupy only 25 days of Jesus' ministry in the first three years and one week of Jesus' life in the last half of the gospel of John. So if you take the gospel of John and everything that he wrote down, he only writes about 32 days out of the 1,280 days of Jesus' earthly ministry, none of Jesus' parables are recorded by John, only a handful of his miracles. But John intends much more than just saying, I didn't write it all down, but if I'd have written it all down, the world couldn't contain the books. He's not just talking about the number of days he recorded. Remember that John has the last word on Jesus. I think this is what he's saying. I am writing 60 years after the day of Pentecost. As I write these words, Jesus not only did miracles while he walked this earth, Jesus has been doing miracles through his church for over 60 years. John would write to you, and he's still doing miracles today. If you could add up all the miracles that Jesus did through the ministry of Peter and Paul and James and John and all the rest, if you could write it all up, and then if you could add to that all the miracles Jesus has done down through history, and if you could add to that all the miracles Jesus is doing at the Anchor Church, in Zanesville, Ohio today. The world could not contain the books. Guess what, John? It's not just the miracles you wrote about. He's still doing miracles, and I'm one of his miracles. And if you could write just my story, it would be chapters of the faithfulness of God. And if you could write everybody's story in this room tonight, we'd fill a few books ourselves. If you could write down everything that Jesus has done for People throughout history, the world could not contain the books. And we are some of those miracles. And the apostolic church, don't you ever forget it. And don't you ever disregard it. Don't you ever undervalue it. Don't you ever leave it. The apostolic church has been given the last word for this generation. The greatest revelation. No other revelation matters if you don't get this revelation. That Jesus is God manifest in flesh. Jesus is almighty God. Divine healing doesn't work without the name of Jesus. The gospel doesn't work without the name of Jesus. Baptism doesn't work without the name of Jesus. But if you get this revelation, it's the last word for this generation. 
Can I ask you something really weird? Would you step out of your seat and would you worship loud all the way to the altar tonight? Don't wait till you get here to start worshiping. Lift up your hands. You can keep your eyes open, obviously, but just walk to the altar, worshiping all the way. Lift up the name of Jesus. There's healing in his name. There's deliverance in his name. There's victory in his name. There's salvation in his name. There's forgiveness in his name. There's every kind of miracle in his name. Crowd into this altar. When you get here, lift up your hands and your voice and worship the name of Jesus. The apostolic church has the last word on Jesus for this generation. It's why the Roman government kept saying, don't you preach anymore in the name of Jesus. It's why the Sanhedrin said, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. But they said, no, we're going to keep preaching. We're going to keep teaching. We're going to fill Jerusalem with our doctrine. That's why this church is here. Now that you're in position, would you reach over and would you lay your hand on somebody? Because that's what happens when you use the name of Jesus. Lay your hand on them and pray for them in the name of Jesus. If they need the Holy Ghost, release the name of Jesus over them. They can receive the Holy Ghost right now. If they need a healing, pray the name of Jesus over them. They can receive a healing right now. If they need deliverance in their family, pray the name of Jesus over them. They can be delivered right now. It's the highest name. It's the greatest name. It's the all-powerful name. It's the name of God who robed himself in flesh. If you're sick in body, lay your hand on yourself and pray in the name of Jesus. I release healing in this room in the authority of the name of Jesus. There's healing in this room right now. Pastor, I want you to come and pray over us. I'd like everybody to lift up your hands. Get yourself in a posture of worship right now. Lift up your head. It's very important you lift up your head. We're not defeated. We're not looking down. We are not sad. Our God created this universe. Our God moves through us by the power of his spirit. Our God is great and glorious. Lift up your head, O ye gates. Lift up your head and rejoice, O church. I want this great man of God, my friend and your pastor, I want him to just speak over us, pray over us, whatever he feels to do. But I need you to do it and receive it in a posture of worship. Lift up your voice one more time. Praise God like you know he's worthy of it. 
In the name of Jesus, we come to your throne right now that every sickness would leave everybody, that every immunity would be strengthened. We pray for every mind, oh, every mental abnormality right now to be healed, every emotional confusion to be healed. We come right now in the name of Jesus for every saint to be strengthened in their mind, their body, and their spirit. I pray, God, that right now healing from your healing from your hands healing oh God from your side healing oh Lord from your back let everybody in this building that needs a miracle receive that we worship you for you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords you are the great I am and we praise you for that hallelujah 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 we magnify you for your goodness we magnify you for your greatness. We magnify you for who you are, for how you love us, almighty God. We worship you. Oh, clap your hands and shout unto the Lord with a voice of triumph. Come on, shout unto the Lord with a voice of triumph. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. What a powerful word. Behold the nail. Behold the hand. It brings to fulfillment when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And he said in Genesis 3.15, he said when he, he was brought a curse upon them. He told, the, he told the woman, or he told the serpent, he said, out of the woman is gonna come seed. You're gonna bruise his heel, but he's gonna bruise your head. And Jesus said, I put all things under my feet. How many know he is our redeemer? Job was right when he said, I know that my dear redeemer liveth. Praise the name of God. You've heard a powerful message. I don't need to keep preaching. But I will say today, in all my years of reading the Gospels, I was reading from, from John 18 about Judas and what happened at the moment when they came into the garden and when they, when, when they were looking for him and he responded. And he said, I... Am he? I read that today, and I thought to myself, I've never seen it before, that when he said, I am he, everybody that were coming to oppose him fell out on the ground. Because when you say the name of Jesus... Everything that has come to oppose you, it becomes a shield to you. Come on. Now I do feel like preaching just for a minute. For the name of the Lord is a strong tower that the righteous can run into and be saved. When you say the name of Jesus, you get into the safest place in the universe. When you mention his name, it is a place. 
I was, I had it come to my mind as I do things that go in and out of my spirit when the Lord is moving. And I had it in my mind that when I would get up, I'd maybe exhort for a moment, but I felt, no, don't do it. But it's about the name of Jesus. And I never forget, everybody say the name of Jesus, name of Jesus. is a place. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous can run into it. You can take your marriage in it. You can take your children into it. Woo. Hallelujah. My wife and I were parked on 93, pulling in the Lambert Road. I've been rear-ended too many times in this city. I promise you, when my brakes hit, my eyes are in the rearview mirror six times. And, honey, you'll never forget it. I know. Where you at? Amen. You'll never forget it. We were parked. It was night, waiting. Unusual amount of traffic that was coming through. Couldn't turn on our lane. Brother John, you know where I live. And I was parked there waiting. Semis were coming. And I looked, and in the rear view mirror were coming headlights that were not stopping at at least 55 miles an hour. And I knew by the speed of its approach, they are not looking up. They're going to hit us at 55 miles an hour. That's about a death sentence. Setting still. And when I looked up, and I saw what was going on. I, I, I said, ah, oh, and my wife said, Jesus. I'm telling you, you, you saw the concern. She knew what I had seen. Ah, oh, Jesus. When she said that, I'm telling you, what the mere mention of his name. I saw the car. Slide sideways. When she said Jesus, they must have looked up and their brakes and they slid sideways around us on 93 and went around. When she said the name of Jesus, it didn't take him six months to get off the throne and come down and do it at the mention of his name. At the mention of his name. It's not just a name. It's a name that is above every name in heaven or in earth. Isaiah said it, amen, and the apostles wrote about it. He has a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How many glad you know his name tonight? Somebody shout Jesus. I'll never forget when my wife fell. I need to go. We're going to go eat something good and have fun. Amen. We've got to teach this to our children. Teach it diligently into our children. Y'all know with my wife's leg situation that, that, that if she falls, it's a serious situation. And when she fell on the ice, Sawyer was three years old. Three years old. He didn't have to be prompted. He didn't have to be told. He knelt down instantaneously, laid hands on his mother. And said, 
Come on. As the old timers would say, I feel him moving up and down the avenues of my soul. He might fill all space, but yet he comes into this heart where his name has been placed. He fell to his knees and he knew exactly what to say. In the name of Jesus, touch my mommy. In the name of Jesus, heal my mother. I'm telling there's something that happens when you say the name of Jesus. There's something powerful about the name of Jesus. There's something. Jesus. Jesus. Somebody shout Jesus. Come on, Jesus. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, I'm going to tell you, he's going to heal the land. I want you to lift your hands with everything you have before you leave. I want you to magnify his name. Come on. Pray over your kids in his name. Pray over your family in his name. Come on. Pray over Pray over your sleep time in his name. Pray over your food in his name. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Whatsoever you do in word, or indeed, do it all in the name of the Lord of hosts. Whatsoever you do in word or indeed, do it all in the name of the Lord. I come to tell you tonight, if you get up and go to work, you go in the name. Hallelujah. I feel a shout coming on me right now. I feel like shouting to before the Lord. Come on, I feel like dancing before the Lord. I think just for a few moments, would you be exuberant about the name of Jesus? Come on, that's what they did when they come across the Red Sea. They begin to get the tambourines out and sing and dance and shout. The name of the Lord will prevail. The name of the Lord will prevail. Hallelujah. I reiterate about this weekend. Thank you for Sunday. The name of the Lord has been placed right there at the Y Bridge. I'm glad about it. I'm glad about it. So let, let's, let's end on a little bit of worship. Is that all right? Hallelujah. Hey, listen, when the enemy comes in like a flood... Brother Corey, you experienced it last night, the power of the name of Jesus. Wave your hand back there. Hallelujah. Amen. God, God gave him a miracle last night in the name of Jesus. Growing up in church, it went something like this. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. Oh, in the name of Jesus, 
In the name of Jesus, Satan will have to flee. Oh, tell me who can stand before us when we call on his great name. Oh, Jesus. I want you to sing it like you mean it. Oh, in the name of Jesus. Oh, we have the victory. Everybody sing. Yes, in the name of Jesus. somebody beside you said we are so blessed this week in this revival come on tell somebody we've been so blessed amen amen I'll tell you one thing I can't wait for Sunday I can't wait for Sunday how many's excited about Sunday services amen amen tell your neighbors say bring your shouting shoes For those that weren't raised in church, that means you're dancing shoes. Amen. All right. God bless you. I, before we go, would you give a round of, a hand of appreciation for Brother Woodward? Amen. God bless you. Behold the nail. Behold the hand. Now feel that. like something is almost unfinished. I believe if somebody would speak the name of Jesus over your situation, I feel an instantaneous response from heaven. Come on, for the word of God is quick and powerful. That means it's alive. It's right now. Come on, I wish somebody would speak the name of Jesus over your situation.
God, you're able to do a miracle in this tonight. You're able to do it right now, God. You operate outside of time, not bound by time. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 I want this to get in your spirit. I, I promise I'm going to step out of the way. But when the Bible says because of her continually coming that the, the unjust judge avenged her of her adversary because she wouldn't leave me alone. She's bugging him, you know. Get out of here, woman. I already told you don't come back. She just kept knocking on the door and finally out of irritation. He did what she asked him to do. How much more shall your heavenly father avenge you speedily? It is a year of release. It's time to expect it right now. Right now. Come on, there's a window in his name that says behold. I think somebody needs to say, I'm gonna behold the miracle. Hallelujah. There are so many people coming back to the Lord that have been prayed for for years. It's time to go from knocking to expectation. Behold. Somebody say, Behold. I want you to come every service expecting it to be answered now. Everybody say right now. Praise God. Amen. Amen. How many, some, some, I'm trying to leave. But there's something God's wanting to do right now. Come on, here's what I feel. Whatsoever you ask in my name, he said, I will do it. I want you to right now ask whatever that is. Right now, lift your hands toward heaven and ask whatever it is. Come on, pray that prayer. He said, I will Come on, now praise him for it. Now praise him for it. Now praise him for it.
Thanks again for listening to the Anchor Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Zanesville area, we invite you to join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at theanchor.church. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.